0: All right, join me then in Matthew chapter 17 as we return to uh, this marvelous gospel. And this is a marvelous scene. Uh, this is a scene really like no other in Jesus' ministry of life, uh, maybe the greatest window and to see what he's really like. And what we see here is really a preview, a foretaste, a glimpse at a glory that is to come. You know about previews, or at least you might have in days of old. You know, like long ago, like before COVID, and people went into movie theaters and like sat and paid too much money to eat too much popcorn to see two hours of who knows what. Maybe you never did this, but if you ever do, and you would sit down in a film before you get there, they tell you to be there at a certain time so they can show you thirty minutes of things you didn't want to see, namely these previews. But they're trying to entice you; they give you previews of films that are going to come out soon. And so what do they do? They show you little clips of this movie that's going to come out in, you know, a few months or the, at the holiday season. They show you like these mini movies before our featured presentation. So you get an idea of what these movies to come are going to be about. You might, you know, mark on your calendar and mark your dollars to go see it when it comes to a theater near you in December 2021. Because what do they do? They give you a sneak peek of this other film so you might get ready for when that other film comes out to, again, spend those dollars and go do that to get ready to see the real thing. Well, in effect, what we see here in Matthew 17 is something like a sneak peek. It's a sneak peek of the glory of Christ. This is a redemptive sneak peek preview of a greater feature that's going to come later when Jesus comes back and displays His full glory before His people And reigns on the earth and then in heaven forever. But most of Jesus' ministry does not look like that glory as we've been walking through Matthew's gospel. Rather, he looks very much just like a plain, ordinary man. And certainly is by all appearances. And yet, even in the midst of that, he really is God. He really is glorious. That means he really is worth trusting and he is really worth following. Even if you can't see it yet or you don't know how that's going to work. And that's important because Jesus asks a lot. That's what we saw two weeks ago. He asks a lot of us, He asks everything of our life. And so, for any follower of Jesus, when you hear so much is being asked of you, and then you look at the reality of the Christian life, that can lead to doubt. It can lead to questions. When those glorious promises, the good seems so far away, it seems so far off, and you can't actually see it, you can't see it with your own eyes. And that's exacerbated all the more as the walk of our Savior and then the walk of all who follow Him is one of suffering. It's a difficult walk, it's a hard road. He calls you to take up your cross, He calls you to die to yourself daily. Why? And then you gotta ask, where's the glory? Where's the salvation? Where's the good in that? Will it ever come? Well, Jesus here at the Transfiguration gives you a preview. Yes, it's worth it. The glory's worth it. It's gonna come, but you gotta hold on, you gotta trust me. And I'm giving you this preview so you would trust me. This is all true. This is real. But it's got to come after. The glory is going to come after the suffering. It's surely coming, but after we walk through this veil of tears. So hold fast. Hold true to my promise. Glory is coming. So in a word then, this week and then in a couple of weeks when we revisit this text, here's the main thing we're going to see. You need to let this glimpse this preview of Christ's glory seen in this text you need to let it overwhelm you you need to have it blazing into your mind like a bright light that you've seen that when you close your eyes still you can see its silhouette you need the truth of this to just be impressed on your brain and your heart about the greatness of Jesus because it's that kind of assurance it's that kind of confirmation that's going to carry you through the Christian life the Christian life which is guaranteed to be hard it's going to be costly it's going to mean suffering. It's going to mean difficulty. And how can you keep walking in truth? How can you keep walking in faithfulness when it's so hard? Well, because you know a glory is coming, and Jesus has given you a confirmation of it here in this text. Let this glimpse of Christ's glory assure you that following Jesus is always worth it. Even if you can't see immediately how it is or how it's going to work out, it's always worth it. Glory is always going to come with him. And so we'll see that unfold in four commands that help us remember. What are we to remember about His glory? How will we ever keep His glory before our face? And we're going to come up on four directives that will do that. We'll cover two this week, and the next time I preach, we'll cover it the other two. But the first one is this. This command is how we remember, how we keep this view of Christ before our hearts. Eyes is that you just in the first, you have to see this. You have to see that in Jesus you've got to see God's full glory. It's not a junior glory, it's not a small glory, it's not an imitation glory. He in Jesus bears the full glory and deity of God. We'll see that here in these opening verses. Because with that, you can be assured that following Jesus is worth it, it always is such that you will never regret obeying Jesus, ever. And this foretaste of glory here is to prove it, that there's no greater sight, there's no greater person, there's no greater majesty than him. There's no one more worthy than of your trust. You can trust him to keep his word, his word and his great promises about all the glory to come. He will keep his word, even if you can't see it now, even when his plans don't seem yet so glorious. Because indeed, that's where the disciples were left two weeks ago as we looked in Matthew. Uh, If you remember kind of setting the scene, they had professed clearly their faith in Christ, that He is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's the long-awaited promised one, the Messiah, to deliver and save them. And as they professed faith in Him as the Christ, Jesus then explains for them a little bit more about what the Christ is supposed to do, what His mission entailed. And what it entailed was being rejected, beaten, and murdered. And as you recall, Peter objects strongly to this, saying something like, Never, Lord, that's never going to happen. That's not God's plan. I know it's not. To which then Jesus came back with a sharp rebuke right at Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on the way men think, not the way God thinks or his plan. You've missed it, Peter. In other words, Peter and the other disciples, they they had no category for a suffering Savior, a, a rejected Redeemer. They had no category for a crucified Christ. That didn't fit with their expectations at all. And so neither did then, were they able to make sense of Christ's call for them. Namely, to follow Him, but that means following Him into suffering, See, they thought as they went and started following Jesus, they were following him into glory. They were following him into power. They were following him into fame, into battle and into victory over their Roman oppressors. And they thought they were following him into thrones of significance in Jesus' kingdom. They were like, this is it. Here comes the glory and we're on the ground floor. We're all going to get a piece of this pie. This is going to be so good. And then Jesus says, no, I'm going to suffer first. That's what's going to happen. And then all who follow me, you need to prepare to suffer. You need to prepare to die to yourself every day. That's what he says in Matthew 16, verse 24. Just look back up there. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow Jesus means to die to you. We talked about it last time. It means to reject you and embrace Christ. So, yes, Jesus asks a lot. He asks for everything that you are. He asks you to entrust your whole life to Him, to die to yourself, to your agenda, your wants. You have to give it all to Jesus. That's what it means to follow Him. Again, there's no junior followers. There's no partial followers. And frankly, that's a tough sell, isn't it? It's a tough sell when everything you see, everything you're feeling and experiencing, and what you might imagine and then following after Christ in this world, that's going to mean difficulty, rejection. It's going to mean suffering. And all the promises he's making about a future glory, those are unseen. You haven't seen those. You haven't tasted those. Is it worth it? You have to take it all on faith. You just have to trust Jesus that he's right, that he's true. That he can keep such a marvelous word. That's hard. It's hard to buy it. And even at this, our great shepherd, he understands. He knows our frailty. He knows our weakness. And so he graciously, as he provides the promise, he gives this confirmation. He gives this confirmation to the disciples and to us as we get to read it, that his glory is coming. We saw it actually at the end of last chapter. Look at verse Uh, 28 of chapter 16, truly I say to you, there are some standing here, Jesus said, who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Again, it's like he's saying, I grant, I'm asking a lot and it's really hard, but I want to assure you it's always worth it. And, And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove it to you. You're not just going to hear about my coming glory. You're going to get a glimpse of it. You're going to get to see it with your own eyes, at least some of you. You're going to get a glimpse of foretaste of the glory to come, and I want that sight to be just emblazoned on your brain to carry you all the way to my kingdom, all the way to heaven, down this hard road of obedience. Well, that's where we left off in chapter 16 with that promise, and then we see it just shortly come to its fulfillment here in verses 1 and 2, where Jesus ascends with a few of these disciples, and he goes up a mountain, and there they and us looking in get a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 17. And after 6 days Jesus took with him Peter and James and his and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now notice two de- details here uh, that tie this back to that promise Jesus made in verse 28 of chapter 16. Notice he only takes 3, he takes some of the disciples. That fits with the promise when he said, some of you standing here will see the glory of my kingdom. And then furthermore, not only are some of them taken, but this happened six days after he makes that promise. Again, so then surely they didn't die, they didn't taste death, but just only six days later, some of them saw this. So after six days, when he had just made that promise that Some of you won't taste death until you see the kingdom or the King come in His glory. He then takes some of them, His choice disciples, and He gets ready to show them His glory to them all alone, which sets up then what happens next in this text, which is something so amazing, something so glorious, something so unforgettable, this flash of glory that then leaves this indelible mark that just cannot be removed from the minds and hearts of these disciples who see it. This is something they would never forget. And what do they see? But they get a look straight at the glory of God. Verse 2, and Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, what is going on here? This is the event known as the transfiguration. Obviously, it's taken from that expression in the text as it's commonly translated there. He was transfigured. That means his figure was changed. It was altered. His appearance was changed. Okay, but in what way? And that's what Matthew goes on to describe. He says, Jesus' face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. Now, what is that about? What's going on here is that Jesus, He's peeling back, so to speak, His humanity. He's peeling back His humanity to let His divinity shine forth and be seen so evidently, so undeniably. Indeed, the Apostle Paul said about Christ in Colossians 1.19, in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So he's fully God, but that deity was masked by his humanity, it was veiled. His humanity covered up the luster of his divinity hiding that divine glory from view. We talked about this last time, but what that means is, is Jesus was so fully man as He walked around this earth, He didn't have a golden halo over His head, right? He didn't have this intrinsic glow or luminescence. He didn't glow in the dark. He looked every bit a normal guy. Why? Because He was fully man. He was in that sense. So, moments before what happens in verse 2, if you could have a picture of these four Jewish guys on top of the mountain, you would never know which one's God, which one's God in flesh. That is, until this moment when the human flesh gives way and the eminence, the shining of the glory of God just bursts out of Jesus' face, a glory that No one could look at, at least for long, as his face shone like the sun. How do you describe this, Matthew? The best I can do is describe the brightest luminary in all of creation, in all of our created world, that once you look at it, if you look at it for long, you can't see anymore. That's how gloriously white and bright this is. His face suddenly shone like that, and even his clothes radiated with such pure light. Again, I think he's grasping at ways to describe this. All I can say is his clothes became white as light. Though for so long Jesus' deity had been masked or overlooked because he was fully man, now, at this moment, there's no mistaking him, for the glory of God was seen from his face. This is the same shining of the glory of God that Moses first encountered in the burning bush. And then Moses encountered it as the cloud of fire led him and Israel through the Red Sea and led them through the wilderness for 40 years. This is the same glorious presence that Moses met as God hid him in a rock and then passed with only his backside glory over him. Because otherwise Moses would have died to see this face to face. It's the shining glory that so filled God's temple that no one else could come and enter in. It's the glory that Isaiah saw as he heard the angels bellowing around the presence of God Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is the glorious light and sight that Ezekiel saw when he beheld those wheels within wheels. And they brought him down on his face and overwhelmed him as he fell down as a dead man. Overwhelmed by the glory of the Lord. This was the glory that overwhelmed the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. And John was here in Matthew 17. But later on, toward the end of his life, he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, exiled. And he heard a voice and he turned around to see an old friend that he knew, but one that looked so different than maybe he remembered him. Here's the picture of the glorious Jesus from Revelation 1, verse 12 and following. Then I, John, turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That is Jesus. And then John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the right response for anyone who encounters, sees something of the glory of this God. When you think about Jesus, do you ever think of him like that? Is that the Jesus you know? Do any of those pictures of his truly awesome and majestic power ever even come to your mind? Or is your Jesus a much more tame Jesus? Is your Jesus a much more, I can put him in my pocket, get him out when I need him, a best buddy on my shoulder, I still got control over you kind of Jesus? Do you think of His glory? Do you think of His power? Do you think how awesome He is in the right sense of it? Fearful majesty. Because that's who He is as God in full majestic holiness. Jesus is God. Hebrews 1 chapter 3 verse 6 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He is God, very God, the ancient creeds say, fully God, the Almighty if that view, that true view of Jesus, heaven's sight of Jesus was more on your minds, would that not change your obedience? I think for many of us, it would. We would more reverently honor Him if we had that glimpse, that view of Christ on our mind. Too often, like a child, we presume, upon, as a child might presume upon his parents' kindness. So they flaunt their wishes or their counsel because the child knows that, my parents will love me anyways. And so we live that way with Jesus. We find His meekness, His humility seen in the incarnation to be not meekness, but weakness. And so then an excuse, a reason to indulge our disobedience is, it doesn't really matter. He'll still love me. What is there to be afraid of? And so we take his word, his counsel, his directives to us. We take him but with a grain of salt as, you know, good suggestions that I might implement if I find it convenient. But trust me, confronted with the true Jesus you see in this text, confronted with a glory like this, such patronizing, belittling thoughts of Jesus should just fly away. He is not even just a great prophet or leader or teacher or counselor. Jesus is God. Full stop. Behold his glory. Behold his greatness that comes just emanates out of him. It, understand then there's no one like him. There's no one that can stop someone like this. There's no one so powerful. There's no one so full of glory. Well, how can I see that glory, Rick? I can't go back in time. I can't go back to that mountaintop. I haven't seen such a vision like that either. Well, how can we see Christ's glory then? Well, in his letter, his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul uses language just like this. He talks about the glory of God in Christ's face. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, of course, this is creation where He speaks light to existence with a word. So that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a glory that we actually can see, even if we must see it in our hearts. God shines the light of His glory by faith into our hearts such that we perceive, we understand, we come to know that He is glorious. That means that He is good, that He is just, that He is righteous, that He is also merciful and gracious, and that He is the Lord. But you only see that in and through Jesus. He has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But still, how does that happen? How do we look by faith into Christ and see the glory of God. Well, Paul tells us in the previous verse, he sets it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says this, for what we proclaim or we preach is not ourselves. We don't preach ourselves, but what do we proclaim? We proclaim, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. He's saying, when I preach the gospel, when I preach about Jesus, that's how you encounter the glory of God. That's how you encounter the character of God. That's where faith by the Spirit gets put in your heart and regeneration happens, new life happens. It comes as you hear the gospel preached, as you read the word as proclaimed in the gospel. We come to understand the glory of God, that he is glorious, that he is just, that he is good, that he is holy as we hear the gospel preached and as we look on him by faith. We hear it in that gospel message. That God is just to punish sin. And yet we see the character of God not only married with justice, but grace and mercy as he in love comes and dies for our sins and entirely forgives all that trust in him. I mean, what kind of God is this? Again, you try and put yourself, that thought experiment, in God's shoes. What would you do with a rebellious humanity? If you had all the power. And maybe you might try and be merciful. But then what have you done with justice? What have you done with righteousness? Can you be a good God and forgive? Well, you can because of Jesus Christ, and that's the only way. Do you see the glory of the gospel? That he can be just, a good judge, because Jesus paid the price, and he can be forgiving and merciful, but it all marries in Jesus. There's no other place to see the glory of God than to look at Christ in the cross by faith. This is what Paul's saying. You want to see God? You want to know God and his glory? Look hard at Christ. Look hard at the gospel. Study hard the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how we know God. We study, we meditate, we memorize, we speak often about how he loves sinners and he had a perfect life and he gives us that righteousness and yet he died when he didn't deserve it because he died for us and he rose from the dead to save us. This is our God. Study that, master that and you'll see how great Jesus is you'll see how great our God is. So how do we do it? Well, of course, we've got to get into the word more, right? But no, do not neglect the fellowship of the saints around the gospel. You want to see the greatness of Christ? Give with God's people as they get around the gospel. And you know, that's why the gospel drives everything in our worship services, our worship services are all about the gospel of Christ because that's where we see the glory of God. So, what do we do? We preach the gospel from our pulpit. We preach the greatness of Christ. We teach it in all of our classrooms. We point to Jesus relentlessly. But we don't just preach the gospel, we sing the gospel and the songs to one another, reminding each other about how good our Christ is. We pray the gospel together. Yes, we do that from this pulpit or from the stage as we're leading. But it happens all over these halls between services and after service, where I look around and I see saints coming together, coming before Christ for one another. And why do we do that? Because of the gospel, Jesus is our mediator. We preach the gospel, we sing the gospel, we pray the gospel, but we also picture or see the gospel. And of course, how do we do that? We do that through the Lord's table and baptism. So even tonight, look hard at the gospel. Come and see the gospel pictured through the baptism of these believers. As they associate with Jesus' death, as they go under the water saying, I've died to myself, and they come out of the water associating with his life as he rose from the dead, that they too now walk in newness of life. How could that ever happen in a believer's life? Well, it's because Jesus died for them and owns them. Come tonight, 7 o'clock, out here, and we will see the glory of Christ in a changed life. So make plans today. Make plans today to make corporate worship a priority in your life. That's how you will encounter the glory of God. Second to that, make plans today to get fellowship in the gospel word this summer with these fellow believers. Especially for, there, there's some in our congregation, right, that can't gather with us right now for health reasons in particular. Go find them. See who they are. Pursue them. Get them fellowship. You can't recreate this, but you can take some of it to them, so to speak, by bringing them the gospel and the fellowship of a believer in Christ. There you will see more and more of the greatness and glory of God in the face of Christ. See in Jesus God's full glory. Second, how will we keep this glimpse, this preview of the glory of God in our mind, you need to hear, hear in Jesus God's unmatched authority. That you encounter something that you can't turn away from, you can't stop listening to because it's so compelling. It's the unmatched authority of God, and we see it here in Jesus Christ. And that truth surfaces in this text as this comparison is made. Namely, between Jesus and these other two figures that appear with him, Moses and Elijah. So back to Matthew 17, look at verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. This is a curious thing. And you might have a lot of questions about it. And so do I. That weren't answered this week. What are Moses and Elijah doing here? How'd they get there? how did Peter recognize them? He hadn't seen their picture, right? There were no photographs. Perhaps he identified them by just listening in on their conversation with Jesus. The text doesn't tell us, but this much is clear. This is a momentous occasion in redemptive history. I mean, you've got these three guys standing there, and they would be like on the Mount Rushmore of Israel's redemptive history, right? And they're all together in one place on this mountain. You got Moses. He was the great leader of God's people out of Egypt as they were, in effect, birthed. He revealed, God revealed his word to Moses, which then Moses gave to the people. Moses gave the people the law. And then he got Elijah. He was the greatest of the early prophets. God spoke to Elijah as well on a mountain like he did Moses. And the Lord preserved his people and gave his word through Elijah and through the prophets that followed in Elijah's footsteps. You see, in this way, Moses and Elijah, they they serve as representatives for really the entire Old Testament. Of course, before the Old Testament wasn't called the Old Testament when you didn't have a new one. So they talked about the what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. They called it the, the law and the prophets. And you have here Moses representing the law, and you have Elijah here representing the prophets. They represent the whole story of the Old Testament. And so those prominent two men, they're standing right there with Jesus. Jesus, the one who said in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to teach and fulfill all that those two men talked about, so to speak. This is an overwhelming sight. And to that, then Peter just blurts out verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I say blurts out because while on its face, Peter's comments I think seem reasonable, they were utterly foolish and entirely off base. Mark's gospel describes Peter's rationale this way Mark chapter 9, verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. He was scared out of his mind. And what does Peter do? He just starts talking then. That's how he rolls. And that means he's going to say something dumb, and he did right here. Well, where did he go wrong then? What did he miss? Well, he missed several things. We can't go into all of them. But here's the main thing that Peter missed. As he offered to make three tents for these three great teachers in Israel's history, I mean, how great would that be, you think? I want to get you guys to stick around. I got all these questions for you guys. Imagine, yeah, we had Jesus, but then we got these other two guys too, great from history, Moses and Elijah. I I can't do better than this. Let's stick around. I want to learn from all of you. But what has he done then? He's put Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. And that's an affront to the holiness of God. That was an affront to the glory of God verse 5, Peter was still speaking when, and I love that, God doesn't even let him finish. Peter, just stop. Just stop. Just stop, Peter. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is a whoa moment whoa. This is a mountaintop experience. Frankly, they weren't expecting, and I'm not sure they wanted it. As you might judge from their immediate response, verse 6, and when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. So before, Peter was scared out of his mind. Now, I don't even know what to describe the kind of terror he's going through right now. At least he had the sense to be quiet. Because if he didn't Have the sense to recognize it before. They see it now. This voice that came from the cloud, this is the very glory of God the Father right among them speaking. For that voice in the cloud, we've seen it throughout the Old Testament as God dwelt among his people. It was the cloud that filled the temple so that no one else could enter in. It was the cloud that led them through the wilderness for 40 years. It was the cloud that spoke to God's people, and it proved such a terrifying experience that they said, I don't want to hear it anymore. It's too terrifying. Why? Because each sinner, when he comes confronted with the holiness of God, the holiness of the Almighty God, he can do nothing but fear. Again, I want to reference the prophet Isaiah. He had that marvelous vision of the Lord seated on His glorious throne. But do you know what he said when he saw that? He didn't say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'm so glad we're here. No, what did he say? Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. Woe is me. I am lost. I'm undone. I'm unraveling because I'm a sinner before the holy God. That's what it means to see God. Why was he doomed? Why was he undone? Because he knows his sin now. In ways he never did before. He knows the holy power of God and that he's in this God's hands. It's a terrifying prospect to be naked in your sin before the holy judge. It's awesome, but in the true sense of the word. So it is then. Peter's suggestion was so wrong, so misguided. So premature, it was so off base because he tried to put Moses and Elijah on Jesus' level. And that cannot happen before the Father in heaven. And so the Father showed up from heaven to say something to set the record straight. And again, to look more carefully at what he said, verse 5 This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That is, to him above everyone else. Because you notice by the end, if you look at verse 8 in Matthew 17, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That's the point. Jesus alone is the one you listen to. He is the hymn you must give all your allegiance and attention to. This is the beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Now that word, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, that's nothing new. We heard that pronounced from heaven at Jesus' baptism. But then there's that phrase at the end, listen to him. Now that seems obvious. Of course, let's listen to God's son, yeah. But even as the father says that, he's alluding to an old promise that actually Moses gave from the book of Deuteronomy. A prophecy actually given by Moses to the people of Israel, even as he knew his special role as the first very prophet in that sense. As I turn there, though, like keep in mind, as I look at this promise, keep in mind Moses' preeminent stature and role in Israel. There was no one like him. He he wrote the first five books of the Bible. He was the singular and lawgiver to God's people, He was their great deliverer, prophet, and teacher. But Moses predicted that he wouldn't be the last or the greatest one. They were to look for another to come after him. So he promised this. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 reads, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, fellow Jew, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Because this great prophet, he's going to speak God's words perfectly. And he's going to carry God's full authority. And the implication is then, you must obey him. And and that's what it means listen to him. This isn't just, you better hear him as you're doing some other things. No, you're going to listen and give account. You're going to listen and heed. You're going to listen and obey. You must. Because to disregard, ignore, or belittle this coming prophet will only prove your doom. As it goes on, Deuteronomy 18 verse 19 reads, And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So when the Father says from the cloud, listen to him, it's not a suggestion. It's not a, being a life influencer. He's saying you must listen or pay the price. Later on, Peter, he would finally get the idea, and he'd be preaching after the resurrection in Jerusalem, and he would say this, and he'd quote that prophecy from Deuteronomy 18 as he calls the Jews to repent, and he reminds them. He says in Acts 3, verse 22 and following, he reminds them, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Then he goes on, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. This is serious. There is an authority here that even Moses didn't carry with the people of God. This prophet, Jesus, as God's son, listening to him, obeying him, trusting him, that shows whether you're not you're part of the people of God. In that way, Jesus wields the absolute authority as the Word of God itself, incarnate. In that way, Jesus proves to be the watershed for all humanity, sending them off to the seas of heaven or hell. It all falls on what you do with Jesus. Do you listen? Listen, because He offers mercy. He offers mercy now, but you have to trust him. You have to listen to him. You have to obey him. And that's like no one else. And that seems to be what Peter missed at first. The exclusive authority, the absolute superiority, the unmatched, unparalleled authority of Jesus. He's not just one of the prophets among many, or even one of the few greats. No, the Father called down from heaven to say, Jesus stands alone. He will not be belittled and brought down and compared to the likes of Moses and Elijah. He is the Word. He is the revelation of God. He is God. Is that how you listen to Jesus? Is that how you hear Jesus? Do you hear Him with the full authority, as the Almighty God in your life? Or does the counsel and the advice of others frequently rival Jesus and God's Word in your heart? I know what God says, but I was thinking that's probably where you went wrong. So, for example, when you have a question, who are the gurus, the experts, the, the life influencers, the trusted counselors that you go to to get answers? So yeah, you build a tent for Jesus so you can go get answers from him on your mountain of truth where you're going for answers, but then you're building other tents for other counselors that you put right beside Jesus. Jesus will not tolerate that. He's not worthy of that. He cannot be equated with them. He is God. And to be true, right, the internet, Google search, YouTube have put so many counselors and advisors just at her fingertips that you can almost find any opinion you want. You can find somebody online to agree with you to justify what you're thinking or what you're doing. You can amass a whole host of counselors to soothe your conscience and affirm your ideas. And maybe sometimes that's Jesus. Oh, good. I'm glad. And then if he doesn't affirm what you're thinking, you can probably find somebody else who does. And maybe they even call themselves a Christian. To all this, God sounds down from heaven and he says, No, listen, heed my son. Heed Jesus alone. His word, his worldview, his counsel must be preeminent. The counsel of his word must have absolute authority over your life. Absolute. All things come under him. Such that you need to test all ideas, counsels, thoughts, even your own by the word. You don't judge a God like this. That means we listen to him even when he confronts what you want, what you feel, your intuitions about what is right and true. Trust Christ. Trust him over yourself. Trust Jesus. He is God, full stop. Can he not bring all of his good promises to pass? Does he not have the authority to do that? Or better said, what authority can come behind him and undo what he is doing? Who can stop God when he settles to bless all who are in his son? Who can stop him? When God says he will build his church, guess what? He will. Nobody can stop him. (laughs) When he says the gates of hell will not overcome his church, they won't. When he says, no one can snatch you out of my hand, no one will. And when he says, neither do I condemn you, then nobody can. Will you not entrust your soul to Christ to save? You can't build a better future for yourself. You can't control for yourself a better life, a better destiny. You don't have authority like that. You don't have control like that. You don't have a word like that. Don't kid yourself, mere mortal. The Almighty calls you to trust His Son and His Son alone and His unstoppable authority who will surely save all that look and obey this Son. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, He is raised and He's at the right hand of God with full authority interceding for you. That's the gospel word. This is what our glorious God has done and will do. Can we not trust Him? Let's trust Him all the way to glory. Let's pray for that. Lord Jesus, You are glorious. You have a glory beyond what our eyes can see and that we, a glory that we will spend all eternity coming to realize. Something that for an eternity we will never quite reach the depths of. You are not limited in the way we are you are not small. You are significant and glorious, though we have turned from you and spurned you and disregarded you, taken advantage of your mercy. Forgive us. Forgive us. Show us mercy. We confess we are sinners. We confess that you're a greater Savior. We confess that you are a merciful God because you died and you rise now for us. So may we, as though bought by your blood, walk in that confidence that glory is coming, May we persevere in obedience even when it's hard because we know glory is coming just as you said. May we walk in truth and in trust of your word because you've proven it over and over in our individual lives. You proved it here with the transfiguration. You proved it at the resurrection. And we just long for the day when we will see you face to face in such glory. Prepare us for that work by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.